Friends in Art welcomes you to The Art Parlor, where visually impaired artists of all types will discuss their work. Pull up a chair, bring along your beverage of choice, and listen to thoughtful, stimulating conversations with visually impaired artists in all media and from all parts of the world. And now, here's your host, Peter Alchel. Welcome to the Friends in Art podcast. My name is Peter Altschul, the program chair of Friends in Art. And this month, we are interviewing another one of our scholarship winners, Matthew Schifrin. Matthew, say hi. Hello. And with me doing the production and the co-interview is Jason Castingway, a board member and multi-talented guy. Many of you know who he is. So, Matthew, talk a little bit about your life pre-receiving our scholarship so your upbringing and so on and so forth before i was friends in arted and scholarshiped and became a part of the friends in art landscape i grew up in boston and then uh just went to public school and the friends in art scholarship was a very important turning point for me because at that time i was trying to figure out uh, finishing high school applying to colleges and trying to figure out kind of what next steps to take musically and otherwise. I was a singer, accordionist, composer, and I was looking into colleges, and I really wasn't sure which path was best to take. And I ended up going to the New England Conservatory in Boston and studying there. They have a wonderful program called Contemporary Musical Arts, and that program is for people who play multiple instruments and write styles of music that are different to the classical stuff. So musical theater or pop or Indian ragas, whatever it is, the classical musical contemporary musical arts department covers it. And so the Friends of the Arts Scholarship was absolutely invaluable because on one hand, it gave me the flexibility and the energy to really go and get it at NEC. But also it was invaluable because Peter went to New England Conservatory himself. And it was really valuable to get the insight of an alum and what his experience was like and to learn from his experience and read Peter's books and really get involved in that kind of a different generation of the blindness landscape. And it was just really, really insightful to be a scholarship recipient and to really engage with the with the crafters and offerers of the scholarship. So I want to talk a little bit about your pre-New England Conservatory days. Talk about uh, your high school experience and what it was like being a high school student and a musician as a blind guy. Uh, it went well. It was interesting because we had a fairly large high school. My graduating class was about 500 people. So we had 2,000 students total. And there was a problem that I faced because people kept running into me in the hallways. And they didn't mean to. They were just on their phones. And so I thought of a dastardly plan. And I came to the principal and I said, sir, could you please help with this? And he said, you know, I really don't know what we could do. Kids will be kids. And I said, all right, sir, here's my plan. And I took out a bicycle siren from my backpack. And this siren was designed to be loud, loud and extremely annoying. And I turned it on. And the professor said, the principal said, no, 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 please. Don't don't use that. And I said, sir, I'm going to attach it to my backpack. And if people crash into me, I will blare it down the hallways as I walk because I'm already tapping my cane left to right. No one is listening. They are looking at their phones. And the principal said, well, what if it gets pressed if you're in class? And I said, well, if it gets pressed, then it gets pressed. I won't be the one pressing it. There is a large button. If I don't press the large button, nothing happens. It'll be fine. And he said, no, no, please. I'll figure something out. Don't use the siren. And I said, well, okay, then I'll come back tomorrow. I'll, I'll see what happens. I don't know what that principal did, but miraculously, not a single person crashed into me for the rest of my time in high school. I don't know what he said. I don't know what he did, but whatever it was worked and it worked well. Do you think this was, you know, just being distracted by the phone or do you think it was something else? Perhaps no. No, 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 because I knew these kids. Okay. These were these were good kids. They didn't mean to. Uh by by no means and they they were they were good kids and they didn't do it on purpose. 
Because if if I hit them, you would literally hear their phone hit the ground. Oh. So it wasn't a matter of them doing it on purpose in this case. They were just literally holding their phone in front of their face and not not focusing on what they were doing. Also kind of a funny related story. I'm walking down the hallway to get to a class. Some kid is running down the hallway. He trips on my cane and wipes out on the floor. He is flat on his stomach on the floor. And he starts moaning. And he goes, uh, and I say, are you okay? Should I call an ambulance? Take out my phone, start to dial. He says, uh, you're okay. And, and I say, what? What about my cane? He says, I broke it. And I say, you know, it doesn't matter. You broke it. That's fine. Are you okay? He says, yeah, I'm fine. And then he stumbles off down the hallway to who knows where. And I walked around with a broken cane for the rest of that day. But I'm glad. I'm glad he was fine. Uh, wow. Canes are, are not fun to trip over. So no, they're not. Could have been worse. I have stories also like similar stories. There's sort of two parts of your life that sometimes coincide and sometimes don't. There's the musical part that you sort of talked about. And then there's the Lego part of your life, which we'll also talk about. Talk about your music training pre-noon conservatory days. And then talk about what got you interested in Legos. I took singing lessons before conservatory. I took theory and composition lessons. And the professor I had, this guy, Mati Kovler, an Israeli composer, he was absolutely amazing because what he did, he realized that I was a good improviser. And so he said, you know, we are going to try and have you write these improvised songs. And you're going to play the piano, you're going to sing. And I want you, he called it unleashing the inner child, where you would sit there at the piano and whatever ridiculous stuff came out of you, you would let it come. And then you would edit it. And once you edited it, that's how you got a song. And then once you had that melody in place, you would craft an accompaniment. And usually he did a very useful thing where you would go and take someone else's accompaniment style or kind of the chords that they used, and then you would make them your own. You would change chords, you would change rhythm, but you would already have a musical template to go on. And so why am I telling you this? Because that's what got me into musical theater and writing musical theater and musical theater songs and all that stuff. And so before doing conservatory, musically, those those were the main things that I was doing, singing and composition and uh, accordion stuff here and there. In terms of Lego, that came about the uh, a little earlier, I'd say, middle school, end of middle school. And the Lego journey started with a box on my birthday. And it was my 13th birthday and uh, a family friend came over and she brought this box and a big binder and the binder was big about the the width of a braille book and you know braille books they're big they're sizable yeah and heavy and so uh i feel this box and on it is a braille label and it says lego battle of element 820 pieces and i think to myself no this is how can this be i think to myself this was a lego set this was a toy and an experience that I had thought would be impossible because Lego sets have instructions that are pictures and you can't, unless you're sighted, the sighted person uh, can read the pictures and tell you what parts to put and where to place them. But unless you're sighted, you're toast. But when I understood that Lego was inaccessible to me as a toy, I was still interested in it as a medium and to learn how the different pieces connected and what different sets existed. So I would be on Amazon and I would be reading customer reviews and websites of Lego builders where they'd write about the different sets they were building because that would give you some insight into what these toys and what these sets would be like if you could build them. And so this box was really, really a wonderful box. I was thinking, wow, I've, I've been looking at this set online and it seems like an interesting set, this domed Middle Eastern palace with a camel and different um, characters from some sort of Disney movie there. And here they all are. And, and there are collapsing stairs and uh, hidden traps and gates and catapults and all these things. And I thought, wow, okay, this, this box is cool. What's in the binder? And I open up the binder. And what Lila, the family friend, has done is she has typed up text-based building instructions that explain where each piece goes and how it should be placed. Put a two-by-one brick vertically on the front end of the four-by-four plate. A plate is a flat piece of Lego. Uh, put the two-by-one tile, uh, completely smooth, 
flat piece of Lego vertically behind the previous piece. Repeat symmetrically at the left, for example. And now these instructions would continue, and they continued and continued, and I was building all day. I built and I built until it was done. And this was not a small set, 800-something pieces. And it was built and it was done, and it loomed before me on the kitchen table. And it was such a rush. It was such a thrill, such a euphoric moment to know that this impossible thing that I never thought that I would be able to do, here it was. I did it. And so then we expanded and we thought, okay, we have uh, instructions. We have a way of conveying this information. Now we need to adapt as many sets as we can and post them online. And I realized that first we did it in hard copy Braille, but then I realized that, you know, let's just do it on a computer. I have a Braille note taker and I can just edit the document if there are any mistakes, fix it up and then uh, send it out. And so that's what we did. And we started a website, legoforTheBlind.com, and we put the instructions up there. And we got 30, 40 sets up. And then uh, Lila, the family friend, was diagnosed with cancer. And it was very rough. And the doctor said, you know, you might have half a year to live, a year. We, we really, we, we have no idea. And so through that, um, what kept her going, I think, was very much this Lego project and this Lego experience because she would come home from chemotherapy and she could not talk. I would call her to check up on her, see see how things were. She could barely uh, flap her tongue to make a sound. But she was sorting pieces into Ziploc bags and labeling the bags in Braille so that I could build faster and wouldn't have to search for pieces. She was typing up instructions. And she was emailing them to me. And the Lego making machine was very much in operation. And so while while she was sick, we were very much building. And we were very much making sets accessible as quickly and efficiently as we could. And then she died. And I thought to myself, okay, you have a choice. You can either make these instructions happen. You, You go big or go home. But if you go home, then there won't be a way to revive this whole project. You either revive it on your own, make sure it gets to who it needs to get to, at Lego, expand it, or the project dies with her. It's your choice. So I thought, okay, how do I get this to people at Lego? Because I'd been trying to write to them, and the only people I could get through to were customer service. And customer service said, you know, this is fine and dandy, but we are customer service. We're not heads of new project groups. If you replay, if you need a piece replaced or are missing your instruction manual, then we can help you. But beyond that, we're not qualified. So I went to MIT, and MIT have a relationship. I Because I was based in Boston, I went to MIT, and they had a relationship with Lego because they had helped Lego create Lego's Mindstorms robotics toys, the programmable robots that they made. And I was talking with a friend at MIT, and he said, oh, yeah, you know, I have a friend. And... My friend moved to Denmark, where Lego's main campus is, and he moved there to, uh, he got a job there, and he can help you with these instructions. And so my friend puts me in touch with his friend, who puts me in touch with Lego's head of new projects. And Lego's head of new projects looks at this whole thing that we've created, and he says, yeah, this is interesting. This is very interesting, he says, and I will help you get it through to the higher-ups at Lego. And that is what he did. And now Lego are creating their own instructions. And at Bricks for the Blind, we are creating our own instructions. Basically, we have a team of sighted writers who adapt the instructions and blind testers. And our blind testers are the ones who build those instructions and check them for typos and any sort of errors in the actual building process and correct them and give advice to the writers as to how they can improve that particular set. And now we have three testers who are blind and eight writers who are sighted. And we have a list of sets and we are trying to stay as contemporary as possible in adapting sets. So we usually don't do sets that are retired, for example, or some massive, I don't know, 6,000 piece behemoths because they're just, they're wonderful as sets. But our goal is to get blind children and blind adults into Lego. And for them to be able to use Lego not only as a toy, 
but as a way to learn more about the world around them in the sense that Lego allows you to touch the untouchable. So let's say you have a, I don't know, the, the triumphal arch in Paris. You know, it's an arch, you know, it's triumphal, but that's all you know. But if you build that same triumphal arch out of Lego or a Big Ben or the Statue of Liberty or whatever landmark it may be, or I don't know, the Millennium Falcon from Star Wars, you're getting insight into what those objects feel like and their purposes and how they work. And that is invaluable information for blind people. So how what does this have to do with music, you might be asking? Well, Lego, it turns out, is a very valuable medium in the sense that it's small, the bricks are compact, you can carry it with you wherever you go. And I was sitting in my music theory class at New England Conservatory, and I thought to myself, you know, these exercises that they're giving us, they're playing melodies on the piano, and they're making us write them out. And writing CQ, DQ, EQ for C quarter, D quarter, E quarter on the note taker is not a very practical solution. And I thought, okay, how can I make this better and more intuitive? And I said, oh, Lego, why not just use those bricks and make the bricks of different lengths equal the duration of different notes? So a one by one is a 16th note. The two by one is an eighth note. Each bump on it is a 16th note because an eighth note has two 16ths. So therefore, it is two studs or Lego bumps long. Four by one is a quarter note because it has four 16ths and so on and so forth. Half note is an eight by one and a whole note is a 16 by one long Lego brick. And so I decided to test this in my theory class. And I came in with a bunch of Lego bricks and I brought them. And all my friends were saying, hey, why? Why do you have all this Lego? And I said, well, I have a theory assignment to do. I thought this would be the funnest way to do it. And I just realized that Lego also is a wonderful resource for young children who are starting to get into music because Braille music was a wonderful system, but it's fairly convoluted. And blind children, they can certainly learn it, but what's going to be their incentive? It's dots on a page. And if you're doing piano music, for example, you need to read for two to four measures cross-handed, then remove your hands, play them on the piano, and then continue in this cross-handed read-play, read-play way. Is there an easier way to do this? Yes, there is, because the Lego allows for one hand to be used as opposed to two if you're reading from a Lego score, and it also allows for very quick changes. So if you need, you messed up, you need to change your eighth note to a quarter note, you swap out a two-by-one brick for a four-by-one brick. Done. And so Lego acted both as a system to learn about and understand the world around you as a blind person, but also acted as a way to engage with music and understand music in a much more tactile and cerebral way. So before we go any further, can you repeat the name of your Lego company? Yes. Lego for the Blind is the name of the website and legofortheblind.com. Right. And we are going to soon be called Bricks for the Blind. That will be our new name. And we will soon migrate ourselves from, from Lego for the Blind to Bricks for the Blind. So I'm really curious about your sort of using of Legos as sort of music, you know, blocks of music theory. First, how did that work for you? How did that make theory more interesting or more fun? Uh, how did that work? And then have you tried that out with other uh, younger or less experienced blind musicians? And how did that work out? It worked out very well for me because I mainly, I didn't notate pitch. I just used it to notate rhythm. Right. And as a rhythmic notation tool, it was very helpful to me because it tactilized Lego. I have tested it with some younger blind musicians and they've found it very fun and very helpful. And another aspect of this also, besides music, that same mapping system can be applied to rock climb because I realized that I go and I rock climb and the way that rock climbing currently works for a blind person is that you have someone standing at the bottom of the wall called the caller and the caller yells directions to you and they say, jug at 12 o'clock, they might say, I don't know, 12, 1, jug, 1, 2, which means that there is a jug at 1 o'clock, two feet above you. And a jug is a semicircular shaped rock climbing hold with an indentation in it that you grab with the fingers and the palm of the hand. And I realized that when you're climbing like this, having directions yelled up at you, you are at a serious disadvantage from sighted climbers. Because a sighted climber can look at the wall and have a mental 
order of operations and know what happens when and how they're going to move their body to get from place to place. And oftentimes, these movements are subtle and very specific and require a lot of balance and a lot of muscular strength and stability. And I realized that on the wall, I was flopping like a fish because I could not really think ahead. And even though I'd talk with a caller at the beginning of the climb before I climbed the actual route, there was not, he could give you a basic uh, a basic map of who was where, but he couldn't give you exact distances. And those distances are very hard to calculate on the wall because you're standing mm-hmm. there and you might be a little lefter than the caller thought you'd be or a little righter. And so as a result, those exact distances are more abstract than one would think they'd be. And so I said, okay, let's bring Lego to the gym. Let's use that same music system, but map it on a base plate, flat piece of Lego, as a climbing system. So we'll use different types of bricks, different lengths of bricks to represent different types of holes. So that jug, that semicircular indented one, is going to be a two-by-one brick. And a ledge that you have to rest an entire forearm on is going to be a three-by-one brick. And a crimp, a small kind of oddly shaped ovally lima bean, you're going to have to grab that with a couple of fingers. So it's a smaller hold, so we're going to use a one-by-one brick. And we ran this by other blind climbers, and we tested it with them. And that was the most amazing part, because even though I was finding the system invaluable, and I was finding it very helpful to contextualize the climb and to also understand how my body will have to move to get from point A to point B, these climbers who were much more adept and advanced than I was, these were national champions of climbing. They said, yeah, the system is great for us. And the fact that these champions, these experts, these masters of climbing had greenlit the system and it said, yeah, good, good work, kid. That was really a wonderful experience. I didn't know there was such a thing as a championship for blind rock climbers. Yeah, it's called paraclimbing. Ah, there are okay. national competitions and world competitions. And paraclimbing is for any disabled climber. So it could ah. be someone in a wheelchair or with a limb difference, a prosthetic, an amputee, blind climber. And people with um, a limited range of motion, for example, if you can only move your arms halfway and can't lift them above your head, that's a separate uh, climbing category. Sure. So I want to go back to your theory thing using Legos. What did your professor think of all this? Ah, uh, she was fine. It wasn't yeah. messy. There weren't Legos scattered all over the floor. But but, it but was... did she did you did you hand in assignments that way? Did she could she make sense of them? Yeah. Or it... Yeah, she could. Because we knew, uh, like, we'd go and do Schubert's The Trout, for example. Right. I remember you had to notate the, the melody of that. And the professor was a Lego fan herself. Oh. So it was a lot of fun giving her a base plate and saying, hey, here's the trout. By the way, I put a, a fish on the first two-by-one eighth note because, because it's about a trout. So, well, of course. Yeah. Yeah. So it, Go ahead. So, I'm sorry. Uh, I was just saying that it's fun because not only are you able to make these melodies, but you're able to have fun with them and kind of be a goofball, which I think is important. Being a goofball is a very important talent. And and, and in all all, uh, seriousness, you know, given the work that you do, you know, creative stuff, and we'll come to that in a second, you need to have that degree of goofiness to be successful. Yeah. I think it's important to have, but I think it's also important to cultivate it and yes. to be able to put yourself in a state of mind where it's it's okay or encouraged to to be a goofball, to improvise, to think in these ways. Because a lot of the times it's, I wouldn't say frowned upon, but that's usually not how a lot of people work. Yeah. No, not yeah. all artists are goofballs. So. It's certainly a valuable, valuable thing. So talk about your general Dung Conservatory experience. How did you grow musically through that experience? And what kind of sort of accommodations did you did you need? And how was the experience as a whole? Oh, it was a wonderful experience. I grew very much vocally and compositionally and accordionistically. The professors were very accommodating and the ones who weren't accommodating, the conservatory was very good about providing tutors for different classes. And so if I needed a German tutor, 
uh, we had a textbook that couldn't be adapted for some reason. And so I, I asked the dean of students, I said, could I please have a tutor? And she said, yeah, no problem. And I got a tutor and turned out to be a good friend of mine. So we, we kind of spent those tutoring sessions learning German. And it was useful for him because he brushed up on his German. And it was useful for me because I got my assignments in on time. And it was a lot of fun also because you didn't feel necessarily like accommodations were completely your responsibility in the sense that the uh, dean of students was there as a fallback in case things didn't work out with your professors. But generally, if you went to individual professors and you said, hey, I, I need such and such document in an accessible format, they would be more than willing to provide that. And in music theory classes, when it came to part writing that was too complicated for the Lego system, where you'd need, I don't know, six bass plates laid out on a table, then uh, I had a person who would write down my answers. I would play and they would write down what I played. So do you know Braille music and how, how yes. did you use it in your, in your, in your composition? I, to be honest, I didn't really use Braille music in my own composing because I prefer just using just a voice memos app to record kind of piano accompaniments and then a Braille display or note taker to write down lyrics and then mash them together and if need be, record them in a digital audio recording software, sonar, reaper, whatever. And uh, Braille music is certainly valuable, but I found it difficult to apply Braille music to the compositional process just because it would have required, uh, you would have had to hook your Braille display up to your computer. And it's not difficult per se, but I just, it didn't really fit into my own kind of compositional method because I was such an improvisatory composer. If I had used Braille music, I would have had to go and listen to the improvisations mm -hmm. and not orally pick out the melodies, but write them out using Braille music, and which would have been very useful from a learn how to notate while standpoint. But it would have taken so much more time. Yeah. What was the app that you used to start the process? You gave a name of an app. I didn't. I record in a computer program called Sonar. There's right. also one called Reaper. And the Pro Tools, these are just audio recording programs. Okay. And they're all accessible uh, for blind people. If one would want to stick with Braille music and use it to read scores and write scores, there's a wonderful program called Lime uh, by Dancing Dots. And they have a thing called the Goodfeel Suite, which is a program for scanning in sheet music and converting it into Braille music. And it's a wonderful program. And the founder of Dancing Dots, Bill McCann, is a wonderful musician trumpet player and composer and a very very interesting and insightful musician he uses braille music himself and he crafted the software so that it could help blind musicians be more kind of concentrated and independent and notationally focused when they're writing and that's lime as an l y m e correct i think so i, th I think that's right um, well, I had seen it spelled as L I M E, though I could be wrong. Really, I, I, I've always seen it as L Y. You're right. But what do I Take know? Take it with a grain of salt. Uh, You're right. Yeah. <laughs> we have two selections. We're going to ask you to play in a second, but talk about why the accordion and not say the tuba. I mean, the tuba is lovely, but the tuba is heavy. The tuba is yeah. much heavier than an accordion, and but, also the tuba is monophonic, and you can't play chords on your tuba, but. The accordion was an interesting case because I'd gotten one from a friend and he said, you know, I play a different type of accordion. I don't need this one, but if you want, I will teach you how to play it. And I said, sure, that's lovely. So he taught me the basics of accordion playing. And then and later I started studying composition with this Mate Kubler guy. And Mate said, you know, I have a musical and I'm working on it and I've wrote a part for you, but there's an accordion part. And I need you to learn it as quickly as you can. And if you can learn it, then I will go with you to Scotland and we'll perform this at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival in Scotland. And I said, that is wonderful. I will learn it. So I went and I learned it. And we went to Scotland and we performed a musical there. Wow. And the rest is history, as they say. I suppose. Yeah. And you, but, and you play the piano as well, correct? Yes. But all the stuff I've heard you perform in showcases has been on the accordion. 
Um, yeah. Ever... Go ahead. I'm sorry. No, no. Sorry. I'm just piggybacking off of that and saying I use a little piano, but I feel more comfortable on the accordion just because the chord making process is much more compact mm-hmm. in the sense that you have your bass note and your chord note and major, minor, seventh chords, and then you can combine them. But you don't necessarily need to think about exact positioning like you would on a piano. You don't need to worry about proper fingering or inversions or jumping across the keyboard like a frog. Uh, well, because, that, that's true. Yeah. That's true. Let's talk about your sort of last project. You graduated last year, correct? Or this yep. last uh, May. Congratulations. This, yeah. I. It's very strange now being out of the academic rigmarole without just kind of having to forge one's own path at this point. So it, it, your sort of thesis, as it were, right? Was I guess was it a master's or was it it was a master's thesis, right? Yeah, it was a master's. Okay. So talk about your master's thesis. What was it? The interesting part was that they didn't allow me to take it for credit. It was not a thesis. I this was a separate project, and uh-huh. I asked them, guys, could I get credit for it? And they said no. But what's interesting about this project is that this is a one man musical called My Grandma's Mind is Like an Ocean, and it's in English and a little bit of Yiddish. And in it, we are, it's for a singer and accordion and occasional percussion. And it has two intersecting storylines. My grandma wrote memoirs, so it's loosely based on her memoirs. And in it, we have one storyline, which is grandma's story, in which she grew up in a small shtetl in Poland, a small rural village, and went to Minsk in Belarus to study medicine and went to Minsk, started studying medicine. In June of her first year, World War II broke up. And so the Nazis invaded Russia and they were coming towards Minsk. And a friend of hers said, you know, you need to, you need to get out, go with your friends, hide in the woods. She went and she hid in the woods and suddenly all her friends disappeared, wakes up the next morning, friends are gone, but they've left behind a little kid. And she has to get this little kid back to Moscow. And so she has to sneak him onto trains and all this stuff to get him home. And then once she gets him home, she the war ends and now she's in a new place. She is in Soviet society. She's trying to understand how to kind of make something of herself in Russia. And that's one storyline. But our other storyline is with this young guy and he's trying to figure out his grandma because his grandma is now in her 80s, 90s, and she's in the throes of dementia. And he's trying to figure out, well, what do you do? And how do you get through to this person who sometimes is very present, sometimes is not there at all? And what can you do? How can you break through to them? And so those are the kind of two intersecting storylines of it. And the first selection that you'll hear happens when our main character, the guy, is waiting for his grandma to come home. So Jason, can we play that? For my grandmother's wishes, I proceeded to wash her dishes. Grandma still wasn't back. I won't lie. I got all in a tizzy, called her cell, but the line was busy. So I thought to myself, What's the most thrilling, mesmerizing, mind-boggling, soul-expanding place that any self-respecting grandma would love to go to? And then, I knew exactly where she was. I wandered past the wines, they're quite expensive though. She just drinks Manischewitz, she wouldn't touch Bordeaux. Won't buy a juice or soda, too much sugar, I suppose. Could be buying a filet in Trader Joe's. Let's hope it's kosher. I wandered towards the snacks, she'll be here for a while. She treats herself to ice cream, then she eats it in the aisle. And if you find her late at night amongst the tangelos, 
then you'll know she's run away to Trader Joe's. I asked for some assistance. What's she wearing? Ah, uh, no idea. She's plump, petite, and Russian. Oh, that's easy. You can find all of our Russian-speaking customers in aisle 14. Yeah, but there's so many little grandmas here. Oh, dear. So I wandered towards the back where all the samples are Likes trying out new flavors So I guess she can't be far She could be trying pretzels Or some deviled eggs Who knows If it were me Then that's where I'd be In Hey, kid, you're trying to get over to the free samples. Here, grab my elbow. And then I heard them. Introducing the chorus of Russian grandmothers. My grandson builds new race cars. My grandson finished Yale. Well, mine writes songs for pop stars. Mine just got out of jail. No matter where our grandkids live, whose grandkids did what first, we guarantee, just wait and see. Well, feed them till they burst. Oi, try, try, yes, love I. Many samples you must try. Try, try, the pivot. Many samples you must try. Oh, try their dill falafel. It's crunchy, really great. Wish to it tastes so awful. I have to watch my weight. If ever we go missing. New boy, sir. Have no fear. Who needs a mall? Pfft! When samples call, you'll find us all right here. Oi, try, try, the you die. Many samples you must try. Try, try, the pivot. Many samples you must try. Oh, try their beef carnitas. I need some bedtime tea. Yeah, I have diabetes. My stomach's killing me. I hear the store is closing. It's time to go, I fear. We're getting old, and dinner's cold. At least we made it here. Oi, try, try, ay, ay, ay. Many samples you must try. Try, try, ay, ay, ay. Many samples you must try. Well, that's unusual. Very. <laughs> so you finished this musical, which was not your thesis. What was your thesis, nope. by the way? I didn't have one. 
Oh, so made, okay. Just do a recital. And okay. The was the, so they was didn't the require thesis. thesis per se, because when I was there, they required something resembling, you know, uh, a pinnacle of your, uh, you know, academic uh, musical accomplishments. I think that for composers, they do require a thesis. Right, but right. I was did a master's in singing, and for us, they just required a kind of master's recital. Okay, with, well, that's awesome. Yep. So, so you wrote this show. What happened to it? Or I should say, what is happening to it? It's premiering at the United Solo Theater Festival in New York, which is a festival of one-man shows. And that's going to be a lot of fun. And after that, I'm hoping to take it on tour to various fringe festivals and festivals that specialize in this kind of musical theater. I didn't even know there was such a festival, so to speak. Nor did I. Went on Google and pop, there it was. Wow. So when is that performance taking place and where? That's November 5th, which is a Sunday at 2 p.m. at Theater Row, which is at 410 West 42nd Street in New York, 10030. And if someone would want to get tickets to that, if they Google Theater Row United Solo, they will get a page with all the United Solo shows. And then if they scroll down to My Grandma's Mind is Like an Ocean and click the booking and info link next to it, then they will receive a web page that will have the link. So what is that? What is that link again? If they Google United Solo Theater Row and United go, United Solo Theater Row, Row. R O W. Okay. Yes. And then they click on the first result. And then scroll down through the list of shows on that webpage until they get to My Grandmother's Mind is Like an Ocean. And then next to each of those shows is a link that says Booking and Info. If they click on the Booking and Info link next to My Grandmother's Mind is Like an Ocean, then they have the page to purchase ticket. Awesome. So we'll have to hope things go really well in November so you can take it on the road. Is that sort of the Hopefully. goal? Yeah, yeah, that is. Yeah. That, that's terrific. I want to go to, you sent us another sample yes. of your work. Talk about that, uh, what, what it is and what we're going to be hearing. This is a very different piece and a very different approach. This is a cover, if you will, of Leonard Bernstein's song, So Pretty, which he wrote during the Vietnam War as, if you will, a song of protest. And I thought it was fitting to put it here just because of the horror in Ukraine at this point ah. and it's unfortunate to see how how history repeats itself it is sort yeah. of sad that happens way too often very, very. So, so jason let's let's play it Thank you. 
and it ends like that. Yep. Wow. I never heard that. Where did that come from? Is it from another musical Bernstein's or did he just no, write? I think he just wrote it. Wow. Um, he might've collected it in some sort of cycle, but I think it was a one-off thing as far as I know. Wow. I never heard that. That's really interesting. So tell me, uh, you're singing. It's not a tenor. What, what, what is your, what is your singing style called? Are you a, a counter tenor, a, a counter tenor, Ca- counter tenor, mm-hmm. not a contra tenor. Yeah. Like the kitchen counter. Okay. Uh, depends i mean in in france they i mean there's a whole debate about this uh in france there was a certain type of tenor called the haute contre the the high counter and this was a tenor who had enough resonance in his higher voice so that it would carry mm-hmm. but now they're just referred to as counter tenors even though contra tenor i think is a older version of the word so basically yeah. they're the same thing cuz okay cuz i'd heard contra i've always heard contra tenors for that style but um, I could be wrong. That's no. Uh, listen, you're you're the expert. I'm not. I, but counter tenors is fine with me. It just reminds me of the bargain counter at Trader Joe's or something. Oh, of course, quite, it doesn't doesn't quite compute. Uh, sort of the style that you're singing, which is beautiful. Yeah, it's um, a lot of counter tenors. They do a lot of Bach and Vivaldi. Lots of Baroque music. Right. But composers have now been kind of expanding and writing for the countertenor Philip Glass did for Akhenaten, for example, and then other composers like, I don't know, Nico Muli or more more contemporary people in the classical landscape have started kind of writing for higher, higher voiced guys. So how is that different or is it the same as sort of falsetto? How is, how is the... It's reinforced falsetto. So okay. basically it's a falsetto that doesn't have... Because like when when people sing in falsetto, it's very, I have a wonder. Right. But if you're a countertenor, you you support it and you bring kind of more of the chest into it. So that's a countertenor as opposed to. Because I'm thinking of the, the, the example that comes to mind is one of the lead singers of Earth, Wind, and Fire. The I do yes. the other group. Yeah, he really could nail that. Absolutely. You can nail that because he he had kind of a a reinforced falsetto and it was it was his stick. The Bee Gees also. That's right. The the Bee Gees were in a very similar boat. This was this is a part of their voice that they had developed or that had stayed after the kind of voice generally lowered during puberty. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. so for them it was just like a, a part of the package, if you will, fine by them. And then all, all those upper voices and say Chanticleer, same same yes. kind of thing, right? Yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Same thing. Uh, Chanticleer is one of my favorites of all time. They're they're wonderful. Oh, uh, so you graduated and are going to be doing this thing in November. Uh, and uh, you have your, t- hopefully a tour. We'll, uh, we'll see hopefully. how that goes. Hopefully, yeah. So what are you doing musically to fill in the time before November? I'm working on another musical called The Confidence Academy. And The Confidence Academy is about a blind guy who is sent to a blindness training program. And he realizes, you know, he's he's a klutz, he can't cook, he can't clean, all the basics of life have eluded him. And so he needs to go to a program to get all those basics covered. But when he gets there, he realizes that things are not as they seem. And he then must in the end choose kind of how how he wants to continue living i'm being vague because i don't want to spoil the plot no no, of course not it gets very interesting and there are twists and turns throughout and i don't i'm being vague because if i weren't vague then the story would be toast uh literally but with with butter and jam right yes exactly yeah 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 (laughs) um so is this also gonna be a a, a solo thing with 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 or there will be some accordion in it, but okay. I hope that this will be a multi-person type thing. Ah, okay. That would make it significantly easier for me because I wouldn't have to play three, four characters. Well, uh, right. So, like, I'd written there was a very funny duet in it called "On the Right Track," and in this duet, we have two uh, the the kid's mom and dad are trying to figure out what job he could have in the future. They're trying to plan his life, and they're having this debate. And the mom sounds sings up here, and she's very uh, angered at what the dad says because she's always 
shooting down all the theories. And our dad is all the way down here. And I wrote the song and I thought, you know, this is really hard to sing. And then I thought, you know, I could just give it to two separate people. Well, that there you go. my life a heck of a lot easier. <laughs> so is this going to be scored for a small orchestra, chamber orchestra? Uh, or, hopefully, or, or, yes. Okay. Currently, I'm doing it for accordion uh, just because that's how I do stuff. But then that's it right. will expand. It will expand to a small ensemble, possibly solo piano, possibly something somewhat larger. Getting back to the uh, the grandma's mind is like an ocean. I, have you ever thought about orchestrating that, or are you, are you going to leave it as is? I there might be a possibility of orchestrating it for performance purposes. I am not going to do that now, simply because right. they, if as soon as we orchestrate, the whole stick of one man show goes out the window. No, exactly. Sure. Is this musical of yours finished? Or are you still working on it? Still working on it. Okay. And any sense as to when that might be done? The summer? The fall? <laughs> uh, hopefully the summer. But okay. next fall, I think, at the latest, if things go according to plan. Okay. I think you talked a little bit about what you've been doing with the Lego thing earlier in the interview. But what are you doing now? And what are your plans for your Lego venture? We're hoping to expand and get more writers and more blind testers. At the same time, we are hoping to also working on global translation. So currently we have our instructions in English, but we're working on translating them into Ukrainian to get them to schools for the blind in Ukraine and also to displaced blind children who have had to flee the country and are in places like Germany. And so global translation, this is one of our things, getting into uh, languages like Ukrainian, then more European, Italian, Spanish, French, etc. Uh, but another aspect of it is human engagement, if you will. So traveling to blindness conventions in America, in England, Canada, around the world, and getting people to experience the joy of Lego firsthand. Because building a kit and buying one off of Amazon and trying to kind of deal with getting all the pieces organized, it can be very draining on a new blind builder. And so for us being able to stand there and being able to give guidance, give advice, maybe uh, pre-source the pieces to make the build smoother and less anxiety-inducing for the blind builder to create the ideal circumstances for them to be able to enter the hobby, engage in the hobby, and really enjoy it beyond a convention event, to really have this be a jumping off point for them to really be able to say, hey, yeah, you know, I, I built a car and I really liked it. And I want to keep going and I want to see what else kind of Lego can teach me. And we're basically hoping to inspire a, a new a generation of blind Lego fans. And also so besides, you, sorry, so keep you, going. You could come to an ACB convention in the future? Absolutely. It would be cool. an honor. That would be, that would be awesome. So my last question for you is you've obviously done a lot as you and are continuing to sort of move forward in, with your life. What advice would you give yourself looking back 10 years ago? So you're, I'm, I'm assuming sort of in your mid to late 20s. Sure. What, would you, what would you say to yourself just getting out of high school? What advice would you give yourself? I would say that the more energy, the more multifaceted you can be, the more energy you can put into different projects, into different aspects of your life, in the, the more interesting it'll be for you. Because I've found that some of the best times of my life where when I was just running around, I had three or four projects cooking. And if something wasn't working out with one, uh, I don't know, freshman year at NEC, I was creating some sort of thing at the media lab at MIT. I was running from the media lab to NEC. And then I don't know, I had meetings about accordions and Lego stuff. And the joy of it was that you always had a backup plan for your backup plan. If yeah. an MIT project didn't work, oh, no problem. You had the Lego projects and the musical and whatever things that were running smoothly. And there's always, I think if you want to make room for projects, there's always room for them. If you let them, if you let them be and if you water them like plants. And also I think it's important to tell myself, don't be afraid to let certain projects go. If yeah. it's evident that things are not working out as you expected or whatever the case may be, 
just say bye. That's going to be much easier than trying to hold on to them and just dragging yourself down. And I would also imagine you talked a lot about your contacts and your networking and how that played uh, an important part of growing your projects. I would imagine that's something else that would be important. Yes. I think that as a blind person, there is a certain fear of networking because at least for me, you didn't want to come off as overly pushy. Yeah. You didn't want to be kind of in people's face. You didn't want to be sending them emails every, I don't know, every couple of days because that would be ridiculous. But you wanted to make sure that they understood that kind of you were legit, that you had insights, that you could be of use to them and that they could be a valuable mentor to you. And I think it's, the networking certainly was daunting, but I thought to myself, okay, what is the worst thing that can happen? They, they just say, I'm busy. They say, I yeah. can't talk. And so that's the worst thing that can happen. And I said to myself, you know, you, you got to go and you got to do these things. No one will do them for you because everyone else is networking for their own sake, as they should be. Yeah. But I mean, unless, unless I was doing all this work, I have a podcast called Blind Guide Travels. And on Blind Guide Travels, there are interesting, basically, you take concepts that, ideas that people are familiar with. I don't know, going to the movies, going on a date, planning a recital, uh, gesturing, and you are building a Lego set and you approach them kind of from a different perspective, from a blind person's point of view. And when I started to make this podcast, I didn't know anyone in the podcasting space. And I knew that I had to get to someone who might be able to, might be interested in producing it. And so there's a wonderful podcast called Radio Diaries. And Radio Diaries is where people are given tape recorders and they record their days and their thoughts and their opinions, insights, emotions. And then that gets combined and crafted into a radio story. And and they've been doing a series about young adults. And I wrote the head producer, this wonderful radio journalist, Joe Richmond, very, very talented guy. And I wrote him, I said, oh, I, I heard you're doing your Teenage Iris series. I have some uh, radio documentaries that I'd like to submit. And he wrote back and he said, you know, I'm really sorry we're not doing that. But here is my friend who is a, a producer at Radiotopia, who are one of the main uh, podcast producers and podcast publishers. And he put me in touch with this producer at Radiotopia, Julie Shapiro, a fantastic radio person. And she was interested in this kind of idea of taking these ordinary experiences and making them extraordinary and making them unique and flavorful and vibrant and just approaching them from a completely different perspective. And it was just so coincidental. This guy, you know, this, this Joe Richmond guy, he, he's busy. He doesn't owe you anything. He, he could have just said, you know, I'm really sorry. I'm very busy. I don't have time and energy. Please go away. But something piqued his curiosity. I don't know what that was, but something made him take a look and say, yeah, this is interesting here. It's no problem for me to put you in touch with this other person. And it makes me feel good, whatever the case may be. So it put me in touch. But if I hadn't written to him and hadn't kind of come at it from a personal angle of like, hey, I, I love your radio stories. Here is something that may be of value to you. Then if you don't try, nothing happens, basically. Yeah, exactly. So how can people access those uh, podcasts? If they Google Blind Guy Travels, they'll find it. Blind Guy Travels. Yep. Awesome. Matthew, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, it's a fascinating story. I expect a lot more from you over time. We'll probably bring you back in a, a couple of years to see what, what else has changed. Hopefully. Uh, thanks, for, thanks for joining us, and good luck with yeah. your one-man show. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. Art Parlor is brought to you by Friends in Art and ACB Media. It airs several times a week on ACB Media One. To listen and for a full schedule, go to acbmedia.org one. Art Parlor is also available as a podcast. Just search for Art Parlor in your favorite podcast app. We'd love to hear from you. You can email us at artparlor at friendsinart.org. And please feel free to check out our website, www.friendsinart.org. 
thank you so much for listening and for your support. We'll be back next month.